Welcome to the Untribal Podcast, the show that gives you news content by regular people for regular people. Today we continue our coverage uh, within the 16 days of activism to challenge violence against women and girls and today I'm joined by a friend of mine. Charlotte Armitage, who actually met on our night out about <laughs> when was that? I can't. It's probably about three months ago. Now. That's about it's three months ago, ago, and then yeah, so we had we had one beer together. I found out she was, she worked for for an MSP, and then we just got chatting from there. So she joins us today. How are you doing today, Charlotte? Yeah, thanks. Right? Thanks for having me. Um, it's good to be here. Yeah, class. What's your what's your what's your story, Charlotte? Tell us about yourself. Isn't it? Yeah, so we met we met on a, a night out through some mutual <laughs> friends in Edinburgh a couple of months ago and we got chatting about um, all things to do with violence against women, which is kind of the usual sort of chat once we get talking about politics when you um, had a drink. But yeah, I work for Paul McClellan and I've worked for him now since um, since his election in uh, 2021, I think it was. Um, so we're happy through his term and um, before he became elected as a minister, my ro- role in Paul's team as... Uh, public affairs officer has sort of focused around many different projects ranging from all the different issues um, but one of the things that Paul said coming into his role as MSP Free Slovian was his focus and his sort of priority as a man to do what he can to uh, lend his voice to the, the campaign for um, not just tackling but trying to prevent um, violence against women in Scotland and beyond so that's kind of where I come into the from a sort of political stance but obviously I'm a woman I'm a young woman who's um experienced many different things in her life all that kind of at the hands of man so I've got my own interest in it as well as an interest that's kind of spurred politically so yeah how's the work changed since you became a minister has it been a bit more heavy on or um actually it's kind of been a bit more removed it's obviously there's a lot of um like pro- protocols in place that prevent ministers from being able to do things, which is which is hard for a constituency office to adjust to. It in many ways, yeah, we don't have the same sort of time as we have with Paul before, which makes sort of following through um, priorities that we had maybe previously a bit a bit more difficult. But you know, Paul is really forthright in his commitment to to equality for women, but also for um, tackling gender based violence. So wherever we can fit it into our work we are really like um prioritizing that and you know I'm, I'm sure paul as a minister in his job as housing minister is keeping these sort of values going forwards in government and he's got an amazing um bunch of colleagues that are in these positions whose re- whose uh responsibility it is in their government prof- portfolio to take that forward so yeah i yeah. get the feeling that paul is one of these people that doesn't just talk the talk i mean he, he seems to walk the walk he's i mean he was the host of a parliamentary event that i was attended i think that was back in march it was uh, to try and put pressure on the scottish government to make public sexual harassment illegal and of course paul mcleod uh, hosted that parliamentary event so yeah i mean before before paul became the minister so that's one of the things that you're not allowed to do unfortunately is uh, a constituency office that works for a minister is we're not allowed to host events in parliament anymore um, which makes sense because these events are lobbying ministers and if you're a minister it just kind of contradicts what you're doing but mm. before Paul was elected Paul hosted a number of events actually not just on the making public um, making harassment and a, a crime it was about things to do with like rape crisis we've hosted events with women's aid we've um, had the white ribbon who you've done a lot of work with in supporting uh, Paul's work in parliament We'd set up actually something we had to pass over, which was a shame, but we'd set up a, a round table where we were inviting 
um, some of the largest employers in Scotland, you know, talking about banks and we had um, construction companies, all that kind of thing coming into Parliament and a hosted roundtable. Paul also hosted a roundtable with MSPs back in the 16 Days of Activism last year, specifically male MSPs, but um, as a kind of sort of meeting point to talk about what MSPs can do in their roles. Um, and we invited experts from the industry to come in and say, you know, like, this is how you can support people, maybe in your constituency directly, but also what you can do as an MSP at a national level. So Paul's really had his fingers in his pa- all the pies in, t- yeah. in terms of this issue. Um, you know, he, he's put forward debates, he's spoken in loads of debates, he's he's really committed to the cause. And um, I think it's something that will stick with him, you know. Um, I, I I believe him when he says that he's committed to it. Yeah. And it's not just because I work for him, but I can see it in, it, in the way that he works. Yeah, um, yeah. And as a young woman in politics, how comforting is that to work for someone like Paul that is so active in the field? And more generally, like I, I'm guessing that you know of other MSPs that are just as active as Paul is. How comforting is that? Yeah, I think, I mean, we're really lucky, actually, in the Scottish Parliament, besides the SNP, who I obviously work for, there are many MSPs who will fight the cause. So I think about Monica Lennon, and I think about Pauline McNeill, um, off the top of my head, people that are not on the SNP. We've got Ben McPherson, we've got um, Jim Fairley, who are men who are fighting the cause in, in our party. Um, and Rona Mackay, so many, like, I could keep listing them, you know, yeah. and that makes me You've feel... You've done quite well there, actually. It makes me feel comfortable, um, and, like, it, it makes me feel, like, hopeful for the future, you know, there's some really important things going through Parliament right now that wouldn't have been possible without these champions for women's equality and the elimination of violence against women, things like the um, public street harassment campaign or the... You know, the End Not Proven campaign, these are huge bits of legislation, actually, that make life so much easier for women in general, but also, like, the the experience of survivors and things like that are, it's, like, really high up on the, not just the government's priority list, but also, like, the lists of, I think, across all the, the, the parties in the chamber. Um, and as a young woman, it's comforting to know that something, it might take too long, but something actually is being done. Um, yeah, for sure. So what does the what does the sixteen days of activism mean to you? I think the sixteen days of activism for me is a sort of starting point for a conversation for people that potentially aren't aware of how big the problem is. And I think that sounds quite simple, but I think people don't realise how much violence against women stems from a lot of problems that exist in society beyond the actual act of violence. So um I think about poverty and I think about gender inequality and actually men's mental health. All these things are so interlinked in what actually becomes a violent act. And the, the sort of male violence against women isn't just uh, out of the blue, like spontaneous events. Sometimes there are deep rooted problems in society that have to be addressed. So if we're talking about addressing um, violence against women to me like the 16 days of activism gives us a an opportunity to talk about the wider issue to people that potentially aren't engaged with it in the way that someone that's involved in politics or someone that's got a particular interest might be um, and it's about seeing like I said beyond that individual act of violence when you think about violence against women you you, you do think of a very particular type of woman but I saw your blog the other day for example about what's going on in Palestine yeah. and women that are in um 
warfare and children that are in warfare these are again much more macro level Mm -hmm. symptoms of violence against women but like or or causes i don't know what the right word is but you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um and so something like the 16 days of activism gives us an opportunity to have these conversations both at the local level and and the individual level but also at the national level Mm -hmm. and as in a sort of dedicated space which sometimes isn't the best way i think arguably we should be speaking about this 365 days a year but if you've got a targeted campaign at least you know that it's going to have that sort of uh, spotlight shone on it Mm -hmm. to have these important conversations every year um and as it's a a sort of accountability this is how paul viewed it and how our, our office viewed it when we were just as an msp for a constituency office is we were looking at you know if we this year set a goal at violent uh, the 16 days of activism how can we work towards change in that year and sort of track back our progress and i think um ben mcpherson is an, another example of someone that's doing that kind of work in parliament he's um put out a sort of commitment list with i think it was with white ribbon being like individually what can we do over the next year as male msps to try and push this issue forward in the agenda mm-hmm. in parliament which is really admirable so yeah it gives it it's accountability it's a conversation starter and i think it just triggers action as well you know yeah absolutely and you've you've mentioned a lot of really interesting points there. i mean for anyone that didn't read the the article i was talking about the the, the gendered lens that you can look at these conflicts in the middle east and, and any in any conflicts not just in the middle east mm-hmm. um i i always think back to you know the coverage of iraq and if you look at like who was on you know the media coverage in Iraq, who was talking about it. it was all men talking about it and the biggest victims of these conflicts are often women and children and you know I, I, the the committee that i talked about where uh, was uh, this un- undemocratically elected committee of high profile you know world leaders around the world basically that tasked themselves with saying how do we how do we maintain international order? How do we establish when it's right to use violence? And by doing so, you're actually normalizing violence and saying this is actually a legit, legitimate way yeah, of solving exactly. things. And I mean, it's not just gender. You know, you can you can look at these things in racial narratives as well. Absolutely. The global north versus the global south. White powerful men tasking themselves with being the protectors of this this authoritarian masculine sort of view of the world. Um, and twelve of these people on the committee, zero of which were women. And I think only three weren't white as well. Mm. So you just, you can see you can see a lot of these narratives. If you can if you want to read the article, then it's on our website untribalpolitics.co.uk. Um, you also mentioned a lot of things that are intertwined with the sixteen days as well. And I think this is what I found fascinating myself in, in my own journey. Um, uh, speaking about this issue is you know the ties between men's mental health and this you know the the aggression actually starts way before the act itself if someone's actually in a mental space to mm-hmm. to act in this way either they're not happy in their lives mm-hmm. or they're devoid of any emotions whatsoever and why isn't that person getting the support that they should be yeah, getting yeah um and then we need to ask why aren't they happy you know why aren't the people around them saying something you know what has led them to that that space and i think abnormal acts always come from somewhere mm-hmm. inside that you know if someone acts out of turn then it's always coming from somewhere else in their life and i think that's you know that's a really interesting dynamic that we explore in the yeah it's like a sorry 
uh, forgive me, I'm a sociology student, but it is, <laughs> it is a sociological perspective yeah. of what, what's happening mm -hmm. and t the actual act of violence. So it's trying to trace it back, like you said, and fi finding out, you know, what's happened in someone's life. So I think it's it's easy just to, to look at someone that's committed, say, an act of domestic abuse as just someone that's like a bad person. And that would that would be a legitimate, legitimate standpoint, I think, for a lot of people. But... You know, we need to, if we're wanting to try and stop things like domestic violence happen, we need to really understand where that sort of act comes from, as you said. So a lot of these sort of things are tracked back to like men's self-esteem, this sort of toxic masculinity that we see, you know, things like Andrew Tate in, in the world of social media. We're seeing young men being radicalised because they're preying on these insecurities that men have. And, you know, the all of that kind of comes from a certain place um, and it has real real consequences in the world. Like I, I can remember earlier this year, the, I think it was a 15 year old girl was stabbed on a bus in London for rejecting a young man's advances. You think he tried to give her flowers or something like that and she died. Like all of that, it, it, it's not like a, a standalone um, event, you know what I mean? There is definitely links to what's going on on social media right now and that, that spiral towards um, toxic masculinity. But also outside of that, like before the age of social media, if you look at like women's, like violence against women, it's often men who are committing violence against men as well. And I think often these conversations, we forget to see men as also deserving as like, I don't like to use the word victim victimhood because I think it's actually the wrong word in this situation. But for warrant of a better word, like men are also deserving of being victims. And um, I see that a lot actually going back to what we're talking about and sort of uh, images of like war. You know, a lot of people have sort of spun this narrative that is uh, rightly so, you know, women and children are um the biggest victims of war but also there's there's a lot of men that are dying as well if you look at what what we're seeing in palestine there's a lot of men and they're just as deserving of freedom and the right to live and um the right to live safely as as women and children are so uh i suppose what i'm trying to say is like this is all so much bigger than just this singular act of violence that we see committed towards women and children um it is so interlinked and the, the biggest issues that we have in the world poverty is one of the biggest like fueled like the the biggest links i've seen in my work and like if you see men who have come like from like uh where i'm from in edinburgh like working class backgrounds like mine where police involvement is really high um you know I'm, my siblings and i were all taken into care like that sort of pathway you know there's there's things that just lead to this point um, and that's kind of a, a point to take outside of the sort of war context because obviously these things yeah. are happening <laughs> on an international stage but yeah. do you know what I mean? No, but it's all relevant. I mean, they're different levels of violence but they're still violence all the same and the, yeah. the narratives don't change. I think that's what I was trying to point out. Um, how important do you think it is to, you know, that, that we really hear out, you know, survivors in, in during these 16 days? Because from, from sort of my experience and in, in someone that, you know, it always sort of was growing up in a, an environment that respects women, but had a realization moment of, you know, God, I can actually be doing a lot more. I can be doing, a, being a lot more proactive. And what triggered that was hearing at that same event that Paul was hosting, hearing from a former colleague of mine 
talk about her experience uh, of being sexually harassed and her um, the the cool campaigner that she was with hearing her experiences as well and it really forced me to look inwards and they like gave me stats like the you know the one I always use is that 94 percent of 18 to 24 year olds have been sexually harassed by someone in the member of the public and that sort of took me to look inwards and got I go God like like I'm really close to my sister for example and I started thinking about her and I was like God, she went through something and I, I don't even know about it. Like, yeah. is, am I, you know, how can I be proactive in preventing that from happening in the future? So, like, how important is it that we, we, we don't force men, but we try and get men, encourage men to listen to these stories so they can look inwards as well? Yeah, I think that's why the Don't Be That Guy campaign was so seismic. Um, because the, these conversations need to happen at the individual community level so i reflect I, th I think back this is something that's going to stick with me for the rest of my life like but um when sarah ever i died i remember so someone really close to me a man in my life basically couldn't understand why so many people were sort of and there, there's there's different levels to that she was obviously white and it would be different if she would blah 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 but like um he couldn't understand why people were calling for men to do more. He was, he was like, I'm not going to go out and murder someone. I, like, obviously don't behave like that. Why am I feeling like I'm being attacked? And I was like, this is actually the problem, is that a lot of men across UK right now are probably going to feel the exact same way. And, you know, I'm, I'm a survivor of um, sexual assault. I've, I've experienced abuse at the hands of men. I've been um, sexually harassed as a young woman. All these things which he knew... And he still couldn't place it in his own, so out of his own sort of like uncomfortableness. And I think that's why it's really important that men need to be part of the conversation and it can't be just left to women because things like locker room chat and the conversation that you have with your boys and the comments that are made about women that might just seem like a laugh actually aren't. They lead to much more like concentrated forms of gender inequality which then leads towards this rape culture that exists in society and I think you know hearing the stories of people that have experienced um sexual assault or sexual harassment and the, the way that it impacts people not just the actual the actual act because that in itself is quite uncomfortable but hearing how it has an impact on someone's life and like the sort of changes that you have to make like that for example, like myself and other women that I've spoken to, I know so many women that go out into the outside world and they feel that sort of hypervigilance, which is just a total thing that men do not have to feel, you know? There's a there's a male privilege, it's just part of that. And um, I think trying to take yourself away from your own experience as a man and put, your you put yourself in the shoes of women to try and understand what it's like to be a woman in this world that is so male-dominated. Male and it's actually really incredibly unsafe for women is something that men really struggle with. And I can understand why. It's it's not an experience that they've ever been through, but I think that's why it's important that they need to be willing to have these conversations, be willing to listen, to do exactly what you've done, go on a journey, so that then you can be part of the solution as opposed to being part of the problem. Because if you're not actively having these conversations, then your silence is part of the problem, you know? And I think it's really boils down to that if you're not willing to have the conversation then you're not willing to do anything to be part of the solution mm. and just going back to that conversation with the with that with that close meal in your life that sort of shut down uh, and and you, you mentioned the word un uncomfortableness um 
I take it you've also had experiences where men have listened to you and your experience and learned from it. What's the sort of difference in those experiences and how can we get more people, uh, more men to to sit and just listen and, and properly take the information in? Yeah, I think, well, like my amazing boyfriend, Andrew, knows quite a lot about some of the stuff that I've been through and he's been more than willing to, to listen. I think the difference is... Great guy. Is... <laughs> feeling like it's not an attack on you and trying to to see it as not an attack on men is the biggest hurdle I think men have to jump through um or jump over rather because it isn't an attack on men no one's saying that all men are the problem what we're saying is there is enough men that make this problem big enough that as you say 94% of young women have experienced sexual harassment on the street you know that doesn't just come out of nowhere um and and it, an actual fact it's people that you're friends with it's people that are your family and if you don't have these conversations outside of just us so like and andrew's an extremely empathetic person unfortunately you can't teach empathy but you can you can encourage people to try and have these conversations and listen to what you're saying so um i think about a time recently where i witnessed a conversation or i heard about a conversation where someone a survivor was telling um, a man at a party, his experience, and he was raising things like Joe Rogan and Andrew Tate and trying to talk about misandry and all these kind of things. And instead of just, when someone is actually giving you their your experience, just listen. I think that's the simplest bit of advice. Like, just listen and then go away with it and think about it outside of, answer, like, don't expect anything from a survivor. You are responsible for going and doing your own research and forming your own, own opinion. If you've got questions, ask them respectfully. Don't come in and like fight back and be like oh but you know not all men are blah 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 or you know what about this or what about like sexism towards men which just doesn't exist like these kind of things um be willing to have your mind changed as well uh which is a conversation that you have as an activist in any point but unfortunately some men are not willing to have their their mind changed and they're very set on their ways um from my experience it's men that are much older than i am um it's a conversation that paul and i had you know a lot of the sort of work that we do as activists against in the field of violence against women is sort of centered around education and that targeted education towards young people which is great it's one really crucial important point of trying to tackle and eliminate the problem um making sure that the next generation of young men are raised in a way that understands consent all these kind of things that's fantastic but how do we educate um the men that are already set in their ways, you know, the people that are the same age as my dad who have come from a different time is just the usual excuse, but, you know, they, they need to be the ones that have their minds changed because they actually tend to be the ones that hold positions of power. They tend to be the ones that, you know, make the comments on the street, like all these kind of things. Um, and that's why I think the work that you were doing with White Ribbon and football clubs is really important because, you know, you're, you're going into these constituencies where men are at, their like place you're not asking them to come to you you're going to them and then encouraging them to work together in that space to 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 try and change attitudes which is the biggest hurdle i think in general society has to to climb over is um that, that change in attitudes we're trying to change culture right we're not just trying to get rid of one symptom of gender inequality we're trying to change the whole thing which is a, a monumental task um but with men's help, we can do it. I believe we can. Yeah, hopefully we're tripping away. It, um, it's, it's interesting, the, the point on generational stuff, uh, because I talked to my dad a lot about it as well, and he's obviously been brought up 
in you know a, a certain generation where you know jokes and comments and objectification is a lot was a lot more normalized still is mm-hmm. um but he's he's learning a lot and he's you know e- even just him listening to myself and him speaking to his pals and that about it you know that's the that's the sort of start of things starting to get moving um but the generational thing is interesting i, th- I think that you know you know it, it, it is it has become a bit of an excuse to say oh they're from a different time i still come at that with a little bit of compassion i, I think I, you know i look at my dad and i think god they've you know they've went through a mental sort of change in environment compared to when they oh, were younger sure. like, especially with the digital technology revolution like that is crazy like about what they've actually seen compared to what they were brought up with is mad information overload and i do come at that with a bit of compassion i'm sure you do yourself yeah absolutely um but do you think there do you think there is a generational thing and do you think people our age you know do you think by the time we're their age it will be stamped out or how much of a threat do you see the the under traits of this world i think there's two sides of it i guess like i do think our our generation in general is more educated perhaps than our our parents generation and that that's not a fault of them that's not a crit- criticizing of their generate or, or a critique of their um generation it is as you say and rightly pointed out because we've got a wealth of information at our fingertips and can access it in a much easier way than our generation the generations before us could and that that means something that's important but there's also that negative thing where too much information too much disinformation too much completely inaccurate information is out there and it's really hard and especially like things like ai really worry me like i saw something the other day that was um this like ai like movement thing where you could like take an image and then you can turn it into like any image off the internet and turn it into this like moving person and you can set what uh, sort of movement it does and i was just uh, like that. <laughs> that sort of shit's going to be used for like revenge porn and, and like yeah, just really awful things you just know that i just i didn't even think about that you know that's do you know what i mean scary. so like that yeah. like that scares me especially yeah. as a young woman like we're, we're all chronically online as young people aren't we mm-hmm. and they're like photos on online just to like enjoying our lives that could be used for really horrible ways mm-hmm. um and that's a sort of symptom of our generation we've created this sort of technology we've put it out there we are the ones that are using it the most like um so yeah i i, I do think there is a generational divide but there's challenges on both sides of that yeah. and there's positives on both sides of that i think um I've certainly seen uh, conversations where people of the older generation, for example, Paul is the same age as my dad, and he's more than happy to have these conversations. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not like old people don't want to talk about people or middle-aged people don't want to talk about it and young people do. That's just not the case. Yeah. That's too much of a simple analysis. But, um, yeah. Well, we hope with, with people like Paul in government, uh, hopefully there's more people like him in, in government in, in, in future years as well will introduce legislation that will try and combat you know things like the, the ai developing in the, in the way yeah, that we all want to because for sure. there's an immediate urgent absolutely thing there that and it's, it's developing so yeah. fast it's quite skinny yeah i know i think the i think the i think one big step is digital platforms saying look if you want to have a account you need to send us a photo of you next to your id and it's you 
So anything that comes out that this anonymousness, yeah, that's you. You know, they're they're talking about sort of face scans. If you if you watch uh, pornography online just now, I think that's you know that's that's another thing. I think would be a positive thing. There needs to be some. We need to have more accountability. That separation from real life and like being a troll needs to be sort of addressed, doesn't Uh, it? Exactly. And the, the the days of of someone going on your phone and and tweeting something or like you know on your phone on your behalf those days are gone you can't get into someone's phone now like yeah. realistically it's not it's not possible there's two so, factors security everything, yeah no it? exactly <laughs> so i you know I, I don't think you know i think as we as we move on that's only going to get more and more difficult to to access people's mm-hmm. technology so i think there needs to be a level that just and that just makes me really like really scared especially for children who are not quite at our yeah, yeah. like you know they've they've got nothing but screens and have been raised by nothing but technology and especially like vulnerable young young like women or like uh vulnerable like girls i think about like even even when i was at school like um i had an incident when i was at school i'd sent some pictures to a boy that like i liked at school and it got sent around the whole school and that in itself was devastating it was horrible but could you imagine what it would be like in school with this sort of technology and the sort of impact it'll have on on girls like yeah. horrific like like you, you can just tell if there's this is why the education in school is important but if you know that just doesn't doesn't work or doesn't like hit the the right points that we need you can just like i can already see boys using like photos of their classmates and sending videos like that around i yeah. can already picture that happening which is terrifying that is terrifying and i didn't want to end this on such a terrifying note <laughs> <laughs> because we are uh, there is a lot of there is a lot of hope and positivity yeah these, for these, sure. are all, these are obviously very real concerns that people uh, earn a lot more than both you and i need to seriously get down and, and and think about in terms of legislation and policy i mean you know this uk government just now seem to be just throwing anything at the wall to try and get more you know votes on the the opinion polls but yeah. uh, hopefully the next government will be someone that takes this seriously and so you know combats that kind of thing i think we're lucky in scotland as i said earlier like there are some really important bits of legislation like one of the, the biggest things that i've campaigned for as a young woman politics is seeing that not proven verdict erased and it never felt like it was going to happen but we're getting closer to it and closer to it which is huge so that's interesting so do, is, is that something you're you're very pro yeah so i and the ysi i brought forward motions in like 2018 and we were submitting them to the smp conference and they never never quite made it to the agenda but you know we're now seeing that happening so Mm. that that is proof that changes is are coming Mm. and i have hope that if something so massive that can literally change the entire like legal system you know getting rid of that third verdict something that a lot of boys were against Mm. there was a lot of like pushback on it still you know there's cross-party support there's been like government backing the sort of public response to it was massive so mm. like that just gives me hope for example yeah absolutely i, I think I, personally i think it's a positive step one thing i was a wee bit uh, wary of was the the suggestion of jurorless trials i think that's got a little bit more concern att- attached to it or, you know both from women and men yeah I think I don't know what your opinions on that are. Yeah, I think the one of the suggestions was um, making the jury short smaller as well. I think, mm. um, to be honest, I don't have a, an overwhelming opinion on it, but from what I've seen, um, a lot of 
the sort of pushback on that is from people within the sector in terms of like the sort of Miss J's and the Miss M's, the people that are really supportive of the not proven verdict being scrapped but want to see a fair and just criminal system and justice system for survivors because right now it's not it's not working and we need to try and put everything in place that's why the lady dorian recommendations were so important though because one of them was a a, a sexual offenses court that's um prosecutors who know and are familiar with sexual offenses and you know know how to write make the right decision kind of thing Mm -hmm. um i think it's so important that you know you you mentioned cross-party support i think that you know taking the politics out of this is is going to be so important because i remember your nicholas sturgeon ended up being a very sort of (laughs) divisive figure amongst the public before she ended her reign as first minister and when she was talking about this it seemed like public opinion online was very much based on how they thought of her previously yeah Uh, i think that's you know if we're gonna if we're gonna make meaningful change and you know you know during the 16 days of activism especially it can't be politicized no this isn't a political this is like you're talking about the lives of survivors you're talking about the lives of real people who are not just statistics like we we need to see the change happen Mm -hmm. and we need to see it happen like yesterday you know so we're only going to be able to achieve that with unanimous support across the parliament and that really is the sort of key value of the 16 days of activism is trying to work across political divides to work across sort of these like red tapes that exist in society to actually try and find a common goal and that, like to, to work towards that common goal of eliminating and preventing violence against women so well i couldn't think of a better <laughs> uh, note to end on so thank you very much charlotte for for joining us in the studio today is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners before we go no thank you so much for for having me <laughs> thanks charlotte cheers <laughs>